Hello and welcome to an extra pod short we are releasing this month for our loyal listeners. A couple of weeks ago, the At The Flicks team were involved in the first Cheltenham International Film Festival. By team, you mean Jeff and I volunteering our services, Graham? Oh, you went to a few events, to be fair. Yeah, he didn't volunteer for any work, though, did he? No, he volunteered to go to the event. Oh, that's it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was sat luxuriating at home, editing your bloody <laughs> podcast. <yeah. laughs> I knew I shouldn't have said Keeping that, us right? legal. Anyway, our involvement goes all the way back to At The Flicks episode 14, when we interviewed Leslie Sheldon, the man with the idea to hold the festival. After that, Leslie and his team were very busy putting the plans into action. We have been keeping in contact with them and watching how this all developed from the venues selected to the films chosen. Before we go further with this pod short, I have to say this is not an official tie-in with the Cheltenham International Festival. This is the At The Flicks team talking about their experiences and films watched during the event. So the festival took place in late May to early June. The opening night film was Sometimes Always Never, a mystery built around a father's attempt to reconnect with his son. As the father was played by Bill Nye and the son Sam Riley, you can see this film has class written all over it. Indeed, the director Carl Hunter was in attendance for this packed gala event. Neil was also there helping out with the photography to record the evening. In fact, he was so busy he never got a chance to see Sometimes Always Never. Neil, what was the red carpet event like and what was memorable for you that evening? Well, about 60 of Cheltenham's most famous attended the opening ceremony in the Botanist, a restaurant in the brewery centre of Cheltenham. The list of people I needed to photograph included Carl Hunter, the director of Sometimes Always Never, so he managed two events, Alex Chalk MP, Max Wilkinson, Lib Dem parliamentary candidate for the next election, go Max, <laughs> Don Jolly, <laughs> comedian, I'm not sure he was there, Lawrence Marks and Morris Grand, BBC comedy writers, though I only spotted Lawrence Marks, though. Maybe um, Morris Graham's there. Uh, Michael Ratcliffe, CEO, Chamber of Commerce, Eddie Ralph and Abby Wilson, and other University of Gloucestershire students, and loads of others. As I didn't know half the people, I just took snapshots of everybody at least three times each. Quantity over quality. Photos available on Gloucester's Punchline website. While there was only a short speech to open the festival, everybody seemed happy to be there. Yes, there was beer and canapes. Try holding a camera and a beer and try to eat. I must get a camera strap. But everyone was friendly and genuinely interested in the festival. Alex Chalk, my MP, stated he wanted Cheltenham to be called the Festival Town. Well, Alex, we've got quite a few festivals already, so I'm not sure you're inventing this. I'm not a fan of my MP. I think that comes through loud and clear, Neil. (laughs) Overall, though, you were mixing with some very classy people. Let's go from high class to low. Over to you, Jeff. If you want to continue in the class vein, I'll use some expressions I learned from my school days. (laughs) And I will just edit them out later. Hmm. Okay, moving on. Let's have a quick music break as we set up my first working day at the festival. Essentially, I worked three days in one location, at the door, guiding people to the screen and occasionally having to sit in there with them. That must have been a real hardship. You two wouldn't understand it's called work. 
<laughs> Before I talk about my first day, I would like to give a huge shout out for Maz and Dave, who brilliantly organised everything at the location where I was working. Thanks, guys. Let's talk more about my first day. So apart from guiding people and answering questions, I managed to get three films in that day. First up was a film I'd not heard of before, an Indian movie called Love, Sonia. Now, I hadn't heard of it, but I'll never forget it now. So Love, Sonia, an Indian feature about a very graphic subject, Indian sex trafficking. It's so graphic, we're not even going to make any jokes. Like Slumdog Millionaire, this does give a Victorian feel to India in that it's fast economic development is not being matched by a social development. In the film, Sonia is a village girl who lives with her parents and sister, Pretty. Unfortunately, her father is a poor farmer and in debt to the local money man. His way out of this is selling Pretty to the money man who sends her to work as a prostitute in Mumbai. Sonia, distraught at what has happened, sells herself to try and go and rescue her sister. Unfortunately, the real world doesn't live up to high ideals and Sonia becomes caught up in the seedy Indian sex industry. The film is full of shocking and powerful moments. There's a particularly horrific sequence where Sonia, the excellent Miranal Takur, is sent to China, and what's done to her there is as bad as anything in the Indian sequences. It's only when Sonia gets sent to America, where there's a nice cameo by Demi Moore, does her life begin to change for the better. With a film as powerful and angry as this, there can be no happy ending. Just the beginning of recovery. There are excellent performances throughout from all the female cast and a very chilling performance from Manoj Bajpayee as the pimp. Least we get complacent, this cannot happen here. Just look around at some of the imported sex worker court cases. Horrifying, upsetting, unforgettable. I was almost shell-shocked when I came out of this, to be honest. Indeed, a BBC correspondent who was there was still shaking and trying not to sob as she left. It's well worth seeing, but be warned, this is not an easy watch. After that, I think I need to go and have a wash. Graham arrived for the next film. You looked completely shocked when I met you after that, Jeff. And that that young girl from the BBC was like white-faced it's incredibly hard-hitting film i just everybody was coming out of that i thought what on earth have they watched you know i would say watch it but just be ready for what you're about to see and as i didn't know anything i'd not even heard of the film 10 minutes before i'd gone in to see it it just blew me away so what else did you see Okay, well, Jeff and I, um, after Jeff's horrific time with Love, Sonia, uh, we went and saw something quite gritty as well, uh, Arctic. It's a gritty and hard-hitting movie about a pilot, Overguard, Mads Mikkelsen, lost in the frozen Arctic after his plane crash lands. Things get worse when a helicopter that has come to rescue him also crashes and Mads' character sets off to try and reach a base five days away by foot. I was very impressed by this minimalist movie. The look of the movie is sharply defined by the solo survivor against the white expanse of the Arctic landscape. Excellent solo performance from Mads and the tension builds to a crescendo at the end. The direction is exceptional with a brilliant pacing, keeping you on the edge of your seat as Overguard faces a series of trials. The relentless Fight to Survive is depicted so well with nature throwing problem in Overguard's way all the time. Whilst all the time we see his humanity as he works to save not only himself, but the only other person in the movie. Indeed, it is, as Graham says, a lean and mean survivalist story. However, after Love, Sonia, it felt like an 1830 holiday. 
Back to the lean and mean. It's so lean, you don't even see how he gets into this situation in the Arctic wasteland, just his crash plane, as Graham mentioned. To further emphasise that point, you don't know anything about this man or why he's there. The film, like the landscape, is bare, and it's all the better for it. As another example, there's a polar bear lurking around the area. But this only leads to one confrontation and no killing. So The Edge, that old Anthony Hopkins film, this is not. Even when a woman arrives, because of a failed rescue, there is no interaction with her, as she is unconscious for much of the movie. It is just the landscape and survival. Impressively shot in Iceland, this is made all the more powerful by playing it down, including an enigmatic ending. An incredible piece of work. Now, after that, Graham and I had a chat to an actor named Russ, who's making a film this summer. And I'm pleased to say you're at the Flicks team have been invited to the set. Next month, we'll give you more details about that film in our movie news column. Mel Gibson isn't it, is he? That would be something you would sneakily organise. I know you, Jeff. Graham, would I do that? Yes. Yes. All will be revealed next month. Don't panic, guys. You can trust me. <laughs> I'm the Boris of this podcast. <laughs> anyway, after Graham left, I went in for my third and final film of the day. Mid-90s, the directorial debut of actor Jonah Hill, who also wrote the script using incidents from his early teen life in the mid-1990s. My guess is where they got the title from. It didn't work for me, this hanging out with skateboarders in Los Angeles in that time period. Ah, you might say, this is not your generation, and that's true. However, one of the callbacks in style is Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, which very much was my period. That also didn't work, and for the same reason. You don't warm or associate yourself to any of these characters. That is especially true of the central character, Stevie, as played by young actor Sonny Soljic. He comes from a dysfunctional home and just wants to fit in with his heroes, a bunch of low-life, scummy skateboarders. <laughs> I watched it impartially, guys. While trying to keep it real, the characters actually became cliches. What also didn't help mid-90s was the really poor cinematography. In trying to be true to the period, Jonah Hill has made a film so dark it's hard to see. Pay for the light in Jonah. What the talented Catherine Waterston is doing in this muddled mess is also hard to see. As for story, other than the brief outline I've described, there is none. Not even a conclusion. Mr Hill, you need some more lessons from your mentors, such as Mr Scorsese, before you try this again. You didn't like it then, Jeff. You're going to have to learn not to sit on the fence. A very quick break as we prepare for your next day. Before starting work for the day, I managed to get to another venue to see what became my film of the festival. Hotel Mumbai, my film of the 2019 Cheltenham International Film Festival. A taunt recreation of the events of the 2008 terror attack in Mumbai, mainly the attack on the Taj Hotel. First time feature director Anthony Maris has made a film in the style of United 93 in its brutal, unsentimentalised recreation of events. Where I think he has improved upon the excellent United 93 is in the characterizations. Dev Patel, Anoop Kia, Jason Isaac all give great performances. You are with them as they go through this terror, not knowing if they're going to survive from one minute to the next. The fact that this follows the Indian staff and the sacrifices they made in protecting the international guests is true and very moving. 
At one point, I was worried we were going to get to see the Americans saving the day. The way that cliché was set up, then undercut, was shocking and again true to life. The senselessness of it all is so frustrating and annoying. You learn as it goes on that even the terrorists themselves being played by higher forces at work back in Pakistan. Forces that remain free to this day. Sober and Powerful, one of the year's best movies and opens in the UK in September. After that, it was back to my film festival place of work and prepare for the arrival of our special guests. Who, me? No, Graham. Film director Mike Lee and friend of the show, BBC Radio Gloucestershire's Nikki Price. That's right. Nikki was running her afternoon show from the venue. Nikki had a very clever link-up fully wirelessly connecting back to Radio Gloucestershire and was able to wander around and interact untethered and did an interview with Jeff and I. Nice. Looking at it longingly, were you? We can't afford it. Yeah, no, right? we can't afford that sort of kit. Yes, it, it was a, I was having a bit of techno lust. <laughs> As if that wasn't enough excitement, acclaimed director Mike Lee turned up for a retrospective of two of his early films. Before that retrospective, Nicky interviewed the great man for the BBC. Once that was over, we all took our seats for Nuts in May. Originally a BBC TV production in the 1970s, this has been shown in festival as, as I said, a highlight of Mike Lee's early work, and the director himself was there to answer questions about it. The film focuses on middle-class characters called Keith and Candice Marie, who were originally created for stage in an urban environment, and the idea of the film was to put them in the country. Keith, played by Roger Sloman, and Candice Marie, Alison Stedman, go camping in Dorset. There, this middle-class couple come face-to-face with the working-class people who refuse to follow their ideas of order. Actually, it's a bit like me on this show. (laughs) So there's an element of fascism lightly dealt with in a film which looks at these people as essentially children who cannot get along. Fun until the ending when it sort of peters out. However, a good cast and a good deal of nostalgic 70s fun. Now, during the film, Mike Lee was sitting in the seat behind me. Glad I enjoyed this one. I was a bit worried he'd tap me on the shoulder and ask about Peter Lou. <laughs> After the film, Mike Lee did a Q&A session where he explained about the ways he creates scripts from working with actors well before filming begins. He also went into detail of how he got the slot on the BBC for the 85-minute feature without having a script in place. It turns out the location of Dorset was very important to the BBC powers that be at that time. Well, I believe Director General had a house down there. Anyway... After that, there was a brief break before the second Mike Lee film of the night. His 1971 directorial debut, Bleak Moments. Bloody hell, Bleak is right. After the film, which Mike Lee, the director, attended again, he thanked everyone for staying with it to the end. This is early 70s slice of bleak life, and it doesn't come any bleaker. Told through a host of depressed and put-upon people. From a woman whose life is looking after her autistic sister to a co-worker whose invalid mother just grinds her down. There is the thinnest of connecting tissue within it. Depressing, and I couldn't even connect to it as social history. It's no surprise that it was 17 years before Mike Lee made another film. Really? Yeah, he concentrated on TV and worked with the BBC after that, and then into Channel 4. Now, the cast are good, but this embryonic work that Lee does in developing his script just doesn't cut it here. Even the locations of Bleak a painful, slow film to sit through, and actually one that made me miss Peter Lou. <laughs> Dear old oh Lord, that bad. In the Q&A, Mike Lee called it 
cinematic paint drying. I couldn't agree more. However, I was in the minority, as many people there seem to, well, I wouldn't say enjoy it, more appreciate it. Interestingly, Bleak Moments was funded by Albert Finney. When it was filmed and then released in America, it turns out a piece of music was accidentally used where copyright was in force. It seems Mr. Finney came to their rescue again and funded the copyright claim. A great man, sadly no longer with us. Despite that, it was great of Mike Lee to give up his time for the festival and a real pleasure to shake his hand at the end. I bet you never mentioned Peterloo to him. No, I think it got away with that one. After that, and desperately in need of a good film, the final movie of the day was the Danish feature, The Guilty, which, by the way, is now on Netflix. A cracking little thriller from Denmark, based on the same principle as the Tom Hardy movie Locke, in which it's just one person and essentially everyone else is a voice on the phone. In this case, Asga, a police officer who's been temporarily been made a dispatcher for reasons you learn about as the film goes on. Now, on this fateful evening, Asga receives a message from a woman who is in the process of being abducted. From his seat, he tries to find out what is happening and tries to use the forces at his disposal to find her. Like Asga, all you learn is via the telephone, and this builds to a real edge-of-the-seat tension. Tightly directed and coming in under 90 minutes, this whole film hangs on that central performance. Thankfully, Jacob Cedargreen is excellent and guides us through the film. A first-rate filler. A great film, and one that is already high on Deck's film list of the year. So are you saying that the central character was really good, but the rest of the people were just phoning it in? Oh, I bet you were glad to get home after all those movies. And after jokes like that. (laughs) Time for another quick music break to show the passing of the days. While Jeff went into Mike Lee withdrawal and had a lie-in, Neil had a morning of photography again. Can you tell us what was going on there, Neil? Well, I went to the Queen's Hotel for a morning of masterclasses on film finance. There was tons of detail and examples of how to finance short films to early developments from Alice Cabanas. Alice is the BFI talent executive for the South West, based at the Watershed in Bristol. You're at the Flicks team, are fans of the Watershed. Perhaps we could do more than it miss films next time we're down there. Ha ha ha, yes, I got the dig, thank you. <laughs> and who bought you dinner that evening, you miserable... It was you, it yeah. was you. Ungrateful Still buggers. missed the film, though. We got <laughs> dinner and a movie. <laughs> That's how I used to be taken out. <laughs> in your dreams. <laughs> oh, that was back in the 50s. It was yeah, a different yeah. world, wasn't yeah. it? We then moved on to a much more expensive films with Gail Egan of Pot Boiler Productions and Phil Hunt, MD of both Bankside Films and Headgear Films. While Alice spoke about precise processes and forms, Gail and Phil were much more in the this is a gamble and it's an ex- inexact science and often it's just luck, right place, right time. Still fascinating to hear them answer questions from potential filmmakers asking, how does it work? And Gail and Phil trying not to say, but we need to make a profit. All in all, very interesting. And while Jeff was still in bed, I believe you did eventually turn up for work, Jeff, just like the old days. I never could find you when I needed you for something work-related. You'd find him if you wanted to discuss films or when Wales won against England in any sport. (laughs) So, Neil, you were saying my priorities are right. Anyway, 
The last film I saw in the festival was a highly acclaimed Polish film from a few years ago called Suicide Room. Good to see Deck turned up there for that one. Where were you two? Still editing. Still editing photos. Do you remember when we started this movie podcast for fun? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Suicide Room. Acclaimed Polish film, which was screened with director Jan Komas in attendance. In many ways, this was ahead of its time with internet films of self-harm and suicide groups, which are unfortunately a major topic of the moment. The central performance by Jacob Geshai was excellent and the whole subculture is vividly brought to life, walking that fine line between voyeurism and warning. Jacob plays a character called Dominique, who is the only child of very rich and politically connected parents. However, like many teenagers, he has issues of self-doubt and when incidents involving his sexuality make him withdraw from the world, the internet and its chat rooms become his new home. Unfortunately, in the film, many of the characters are just uninteresting, and as such, the film drags a little. It's a worthy film, don't get me wrong, and certainly worth seeing, just with its characterizations and the animated world it creates for inside the internet, it seems to be a little remote for maximum impact. After the screening, there was a fascinating Q&A with director Jan Komosa. He explained the tremendous impact the film had, not only in his native Poland, but also in places like Japan. How the young star, whose first film this was, was mobbed wherever he went in Poland and kept phoning the director to complain about that, and then eventually went on to bigger features like Dracula Untold. In fact, I even got a couple of questions in. You would. I bet they put you in charge of the mic as well. Yeah, how did you know that, Neil? I mean, it's stupid of them, I know. But anyway, back to my important question. Wait a minute. You were in charge of the mic, and despite the audience wanting to ask questions, you hogged it. Yes, of course. Hmm. Oh, that's so you. Uh, sorry, who's the most important person here? <laughs> oh, <Me>. Right. <laughs> now, in your head. Let's go back to my important questions, lads. <laughs> there is a sequence where the young protagonist of the film, Dominique, goes into a school prepared to confront bullies who had been tormenting him over his sexuality. As Dominique enters the school, you see he has goth-style makeup on and a gun in his hoodie. This struck me visually as a reference to the Columbine High School massacre which Jan confirmed was very much intentional. Now, Suicide Room also has a lot of animation. That includes the Suicide Room of the title. It's a virtual world where he meets and falls in love with Sylvia, an animated character who has a striking resemblance to the Artemis avatar in Ready Player One. I raised that point on the similarity. While it wasn't confirmed, it certainly was seen by a lot of powerful people in Hollywood. I'll leave that out there with you. So Jan is a fascinating man, and I look forward to seeing more of his work. Well, at least you got one good question in. No, I'd say two. That it? Just eight films in three days? You're a lightweight. Lucy did more than that in 24 hours. Neil, you forget how old Jeff is. Good point. In fact, sometimes Jeff forgets how old he is. You guys are so funny, you should be standing in the Tory party leadership race. (laughs) Especially with the amount of cocaine you two have had. (laughs) (laughs) Time for another music break, Graham, before we talk about the end of the festival. So that ended our involvement. However, there were another two days of events after that, which unfortunately we were unable to cover, probably because of Neil out playing golf and Graham with his editing. 
On the last night, there was the grand finale and the prize given. Here is the list of the films which won. Best Short Experimental. My Dad is Orange, El Ralph. Best Short Narrative. Hell for a moment, Edward Jab. Now, actually, we've seen this one, Graham. Oh, gosh, yes, we have. Yes. yes. We saw it before the festival. We yes, were we, we were asked to give our views on it and whether it should be included in the festival. Disturbing film. It was a very disturbing film, which has a little twist in its narrative, so we won't say any more here, but if you get a chance, seek it out. Next award, Best Short Documentary. £125 an hour, Andrew Owens. Best Feature Documentary. Shakespeare's Heroes and Villains, Stephen Cookson. Best Feature Narrative. Capernaum. Nadine Debaki. What do you think, Neil? Should we have been there for the prize giving? Not sure. Those high heels are difficult to walk in. And on that note, it's goodbye from us until the next Cheltenham International Film Festival and thank you to everyone who made this possible. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. See you at the next film festival that will have us. <laughs> yeah.